What a precious truth that is to those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. If he had not received us just as we were, none of us would have been eligible to receive the life-transforming salvation that only Jesus Christ can bring. But that truth is only the beginning. He brings us into his family just as I am, but he doesn't intend to leave us just as we were. But he intends to change us, shape us. And that's how the song goes on. We were broken. We were in need of mending. We were not whole. And God is changing our lives. He is healing us and bringing us wholeness and filling us and forming us. Praise God. That's why we sing praise God for what he has done. Hallelujah for what God has done for us and what he continues to do for us. What a precious truth that is for us. Well, as we continue on in our series, in fact, as we embark upon the second week of our series, I thought it might be important for us just to uh, circle back for a moment and make certain that we know why we're studying doctrine together. Why is this so important? And it really is. What is the point of this? I think if we don't understand the point, we might not have the same passion or motivation that we ought to have. And so what is the point? Well, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles quickly to Ephesians 4. And I want to show you something here in this text that is so critically important as we understand how important it is that we know the truth, that we understand what the Word of God says in our lives or to our lives. And um, in verse 11 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, it starts this way. It was he who gave, and then he starts off with church leaders. It was, it was Christ who gave church leaders to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ or the church may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. That's the critical issue with respect to doctrine, with respect to truth, with respect to teaching that we present is the point is that we might be united in the faith. It goes on from there to say how important this is because this unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God leads us to become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We were broken. We needed mending. We were not whole. We were sinful. And we need to have the fullness of Christ shaping us and changing us. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. There are lots of noises around us. There are secular noises. There are noises of all kinds of different varieties of teachings in churches. I've said this before, but how confusing it must be to someone who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ to see all of these different types of churches. That's not God's plan. In fact, Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17 said, oh, Father, that they might be one as you and I are one, so that the world might believe that you sent me and that you love them. 
our unity around the truth not only causes us to grow and be more like Christ, but enables the world to believe that Jesus was sent by the Father and that the Father loves them. How more important a message is that? So we have this goal, this responsibility to make certain that we're on the same page, that we're on God's page, that we, we gain our teaching and our understanding of God and man and sin and, and salvation and eternity and heaven and hell. We get it from the word of God. We all go to the same place and make sure that God's, what God says is what we believe. That unity is critical. And in earlier on in this chapter, the Apostle Paul says in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then he goes on to describe the truth. There is one church and one Spirit and one calling and one hope and one Lord and one faith, and one baptism, and one God. I will have nothing to do with multi-faith things. Why? Because it's an affront to the Word of God. There's no such thing as multi-faith. There is one faith, and there is one God, and there is one immersion, and there is one Spirit, and there is one church, There is one truth, and that truth is cradled in love as we present it to one another, that we might grow up in all things in Christ. Well, that's not the sermon, and I got to prevent it from becoming the sermon. That's just a hors d'oeuvre. That's just a warm, warm it up. So I want to um, get an agreement because we have an agreement here, which I find quite wonderful. Um, you know, and we have, we have this tremendous gathering of, of people from all kinds of backgrounds here in our congregation. I mean, the representation in our, on our staff alone is staggering. We have a Salvation Army. Can I have a shout out for the Salvation Army that's in here? Not many. There was lots in the first service. I guess they're early morning risers. <laughs> Based how easily Pastor Ken falls asleep, I know that they are early risers. <laughs> He's fighting it right now. I got to stay awake. <laughs> We have a Pentecostal. Come on. Okay, a little bit more. We have a Missionary Alliance. <laughs> We have a Baptist. We have an Atlantic Baptist. I don't even know what they are. I, I know at church potlucks they bring lobsters and fish. That's all I know. It's, it's like, God, don't send me to the Atlantic provinces. He left and came here. So how do we get along? You know how we get along? They keep me on my toes. If I can't show it to them from the word of God, they ain't having it. And so it should be. 
So it should be. So what we have here is an agreement that uh, our survey, that almost 100% of you said that the Word of God is the authority for your life. So that's good. That's, a, that's like, I can, I can work with that. So if we believe that, that revelation is king, that God has revealed himself and it is the authority in our lives, then I know that observation and experience and all of the other things and all of the voices and the noises and all the background is servant to revelation, right? So this morning, as we embark upon the next in our journey of doctrine, we're going to talk about the doctrine of humanity, the doctrine of man and woman. Where in the world did we come from? What does the Bible have to say about it? Because we're going to talk about the truth about humans. Everybody has an opinion out there. The schools have an opinion. The workplace has an opinion. The media has an opinion. Your friends have an opinion. The background of your life has an opinion. Your family has an opinion. But the only opinion that really, really matters is what's God's opinion of Humanity. Yes? Okay. So let's go to the front of the book. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth. That's just a spread out form of the word everything. God, in the beginning, God created everything. Now, as I said to you, I'm, I'm simply going to share with you what the Bible declares. You can look at it for yourself. Is this what the Bible says? What's the Bible declare about us? The Bible declares that in the beginning, God made everything, the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. You're going to see, and we're going to discover that God has a modus operandi for how he models and fashions the things he makes. He takes things that are unformed and forms them. He takes things that are unfilled and fills them. And you're going to see that that's what happens. He not only does it in the physical world as he created all the things that you see, but he does that in the spiritual world. That's in fact what he's done for us. He takes what is unformed and forms us into the image of Christ. He takes what's unfilled and fills us with the spirit of God. That's salvation. That's what happens. That's what Christian living is. And it's the continuity of the same modus of operandi by God in creation. And that same creative model follows through in the new creation, in our born-again experience of being recreated. That emptiness, that formless uh, Hebrew words, tohu wabohu. Some of you are interested in the original language. Some of you aren't. They were greatly interested in the first service, weren't they, guys? They were just like, this is, this is the greatest thing we've ever heard. <laughs> Tohu, without form. Bohu, unfilled. Wa, and. That's what it says here in the text, that this is how God functions. And so, as we work our way through the text, it explains how God is forming what is unformed and how God is filling what is unfilled, that he has created space, he has created matter, and here's what he's doing with it. And by the time we get down to verse 26, we hear, we hear these words. Then God said, let us make man in our image. The Godhead is being addressed here and is now speaking that let us make man. In the beginning, God created man. 
Man was created by God, not an evolved being from a lower order of creature or kind. At least you can't get that from the Bible. And you can't get that from the Bible in any form. You can't put an adjective in front of evolution and find it in the Bible. It just doesn't exist. It, it do, it's not compatible at all. On day six, it says... Because as we keep moving through the text, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man, human, in his own image. And now he describes it. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We've been granted stewardship over this creation of God's and responsibility to rule over it in wisdom and with the care that God wants us to have. And it says at the end of verse 30, and, so, and, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. The picture of the scriptural text is a sudden creation of man and woman on day six of his creation week. Now, what is being taught and the noises that are mostly around us in the educational system, which is highly and almost exclusively endorsed everywhere, is the system of evolution, which cannot presently be observed and should not have been halted, but for some reason we don't see anything continuing. And what we're, let, what we're asked to believe is that there's some sort of chance arrival of human beings by some coincidental chemical and biological coincidence that have somehow come together and formed a human. And, and furthermore, to deal with this complexity or the perplexity of all of this, we have to believe that somehow, somewhere, in this pre-human state, that based on coincidental mutations of these pre-humans, that somewhere on the globe, a coincidental mutation took place to move a pre-human to a human female and a pre-human to a human male, and that somehow that happened at exactly the same moment in the history of the world, and that somehow those two opposite sexes found each other and somehow were to believe that that girl was willing to go out with that guy. And people happened. I reject that because the Word of God rejects it. I reject it entirely because the Word of God it rejects it. It doesn't even make sense to me. I feel sorry for those believers who are science teachers in our public system. As I one time thought I might end up being, since my undergraduate work is in biology. I tell you what, if I was a teacher in the public system right now, I'll tell you what I'd be doing. I would be grading the work on this section, of course, of the origins of man, because you've got to teach it. I would be grading it Nick, this is an idea for you. I would be grading it on the basis of how good a critique my students could make of evolution. I would teach it, 
But I would say the best mark in this class is going to the person who comes up with the best argument against evolution. That's what I do. Don't know if you can, Nick, or not, but that's what I do. Because I think the kids are smarter than their science textbooks. That's what I think. So creation in, uh, versus evolution in any form or description is just doesn't make sense. Uh, the idea of a prolonged formation of life through death of others, which is what evolution requires. And here's why I believe that. The scriptures present this as truth. Romans 5.12, therefore... Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Now let me stop there. The Word of God teaches in the New Testament that the origin of sin came because of the disobedience of man. In fact, this is the way it says death came to all people. The theory of evolution is based on the idea that a series over prolonged millions of years of death of one form produces the life of another form, which in that theory forces us to believe that before man even existed, death was occurring. Well, if that theory is true, then the Bible is wrong. If the Bible is right, then that theory is wrong. And you have to choose which you're going to believe. Believe what God says or believe what the science books say. Also, when Jesus was defending the, the sanctity of marriage and the, the rightness of marriage and the permanence of marriage in Matthew 19.4, Jesus himself stated this, the creator made them male and female. Now, that's from the, the very lips of the Son of God, who, by the way, is highly qualified to talk about this. And why do I say that? Because last week, we learned in the doctrine of God that Jesus Christ is the creator. So he has the right to ask every professor and every teacher of biology, where were you when the universe was put into place? Where were you when man and, man and woman was created? Because I happened to be there. I was the one who actually created it, so you have to take it up with Jesus. And then in the text itself, on chapter 2 here of Genesis, you see chapter 2, verse 1, it says, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. That, that word completed is kalal, another important Hebrew word, which means the creation was added to until it was fully completed. That's what that word kalal means. In all of its varieties. In other words, it was, and it, it talks to this, this word is used to be a full end finish. Once the quota of everything that was necessary was finished, this word is how that's, that describes that reality. It was a full end finish until completed by the seventh day kalal. You'll notice also in this, secondly, that man is of a different kind than the rest of living creation. Look at, the, look at verse 24. 
uh, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then we move to man. And then God said, let us make man in our image, not after their kinds. Man is not just the long series of progression from animal to animal to animal to another form of animal. Human beings are not animals. We are not of the animal kingdom. We are entirely different. We have been made in the image and likeness of God. That establishes a whole pattern, a whole level of different form of life. In fact... In, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, the Apostle Paul said, It is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. In other words, the protos anthropos, Greek, the first man, had a name. It wasn't some sort of vague idea of something happened to, after a series of mutations and, and we got some sort of humanids. But rather, no, there was this protos anthropos, first man, called Adam. And in the same way that there was a protos anthropos, there was a second Adam, Jesus Christ. If there was not a protos anthropos, as Paul says here, a first man, then there's, it's a lie to say there's a second Adam. And if there's no second Adam, we should stop right now and get back in our cars and go home. There's no point in celebrating this table. There's no point in, 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 in living. There's no hope that we have. But in fact, we know that there is and there was. And this first Adam, by the way, had a job. The very first career, you know what it was? A landscaper. So if you were a landscaper here today, you have the very first career the one that God actually made. Dave, you, you, the trimming of trees. That's like a godly job given by God as the very first. You, you, like Adam, are the very first career guy. The protos careeros. <laughs> we read that a man is in the imago Dei, Latin. The image of God, made in the likeness of God, that's like a wow factor, made by God. When you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror, on your forehead are the invisible words, made by God. There's lots of stuff made in China. I got a house full of stuff. But when I look in the mirror, I'm not made in China. At least I don't think my parents went to China. I, I hadn't heard that anyway. But made by God. Everybody, every human has the image of God, the likeness of God, passed down through this reproduction of humans so that every human being, whether they love God or not, is made in the image of God and has value, is important to God, is loved by God, that's our brand. 
not of a lower order, but of the higher order of God. We're in the same order as God himself. Think about that. That's awesome. That's incredible. Which means, because we're made in the image of God, we share in the communicable attributes of God. Humans are rational. Humans are relational. Humans in their original creation were righteous. And Jesus Christ is restoring that to us through salvation. And we're spiritual. Animals are not spiritual. Animals are not rational. They're not righteous. I just won't say what I said in the first service. It got me too many enemies. It had something to do with dogs, though. You have to ask them if they're willing to share with you, because I'm not. So man is created by, by God. Man is a, of a different kind than the rest of creation. And man, but sadly, man has been ruined. Notice in chapter 3 what happened. They were placed in the garden, and the serpent was more crafty. And he said to the woman, did God really say? You see, stop right there. It's always an attack on God's word. Always. Everything that goes wrong is always first started with an attack on God's word, attacking God's truth, where people stop, to, stop believing God's truth. When you stop believing God's truth and start listening to the noises around you, whether they're satanic, secular, or otherwise, everything comes off the rails. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Satan says to her, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know what Eve did when she actually ate of that fruit? She chose... Rather than God's good plan for us, she chose to experience evil. She wasn't satisfied to have God say there is good and evil and Eve, you don't want any part of the evil. Take my word for it. In fact, so, so passionate am I about this, Eve, if you eat this fruit, you're going to die. You don't want to experience evil. If Eve had not touched of that fruit, we would never have experienced evil. But she did. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. And that's the place, guys, where you were supposed to step in for your wife and say, hey, wait a second. What does God's word say about this decision? That's the job of a husband. That's your role. That's your responsibility. You've been called by God and assigned and been given an office in your home, the office of priest of your family, and you take that responsibility seriously. What does God's word say about this decision we are about to make? Because we will not go against God's word in this family. But they did, and man has been ruined As you read down through the chapter, you'll find out, of course, that they were cursed by God for their sin. And we get to verse 23, and it says what happened. So the Lord God banished him. 
How bad is it we once walked with God? The first, our forefather, Adam and Eve, walked with God in the garden, and now they're banished from the garden, banished from God. We've been separated from God irrevocably. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life, to everlasting life with God. The way has been barred. We have been banished. So what can happen? Is it beyond repair, restoration? What do the scriptures tell us? This is something very important. The question is, how badly are we banished and how badly have we been separated from God? Obviously, we're sitting here this morning and we know something we know some really good news. We're, we're about to celebrate some really good news all over again because we know that, that God has done something spectacular. But, but how did our surveys roll out? There were a couple of questions that, that were in regard to this about, the, about how badly ruined we are. And the question in the survey, one of the questions said, people have the ability to turn to God on their own initiative. And 31% of you agreed with that. And 9% of you were uncertain that we have the ability to turn to God. So how badly were we damaged? In other words, how bad off, not good English, I think, but how bad off, blame Dwight Pentecost because it's his phrase. How bad off are we? Because that's really the question that we need to answer. And, and so, we, so many of us think, well, not so bad off because we have the ability to turn to God. Well, here's what the Bible says in John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 44, this is the word of God to us. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And this word draws is a very, very illustrative word. It means drag or haul me. I wouldn't come to God on my own ability because I couldn't. I had to be dragged by God into his family. I had to be hauled by God into his family. The U-Haul company should, be, should use this Greek word because that's what it means, haul, to drag, to carry. I wouldn't come to God on my own. It's not possible. I have no ability to come to God. I have to be dragged to him, kicking and screaming because we've gone astray. In the second survey, it asked the question, how do we obtain peace with God? Can we obtain it by first taking the initiative to seek God? And 40% of you thought, yes, that's, that's what we could do. We could take the initiative and seek God, and then he, by grace, will save us. 11% of you were uncertain. So over 50% of you were we're um, in, in a, a strange place with this one because here's what God's word says. Romans 3, 9 to 12. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? In, in other words, do Jews have an advantage over Gentiles? Not at all, Paul says. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. For it is written, there is no one righteous not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Can I hear it? What does it say there? No one seeks God. That's pretty plain, isn't it? 
All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Everyone has been banished and the way has been barred and we have no ability because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We have no ability. We have no initiative. We can't seek God. We can't call out to God. We have no ability to come to God. That's how bad off we are. And we call that the doctrine of total depravity. Depravity doesn't mean how bad you are. It means how bad off you are. Depravity means that people are completely unable to restore a relationship with God. So what's the good news in all of this? God has made a a reconnection possible. Right in Genesis 3.15, we encounter the first gospel, the Protevangelium, we call it. Your offspring and the seed of woman will be at enmity, God says. The offspring of Satan and the seed of woman will be at enmity. The seed, not seeds, but one seed, Jesus. And you will strike his heel. In other words, Satan will strike the heel of Jesus and wound him, but he will crush your head. So how do we get right with God? Here's how we get right with God. We have no ability. We have no desire to seek him, but he died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation, Titus 2, 11 to 14, to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Jesus Christ became our substitutionary atonement, another doctrinal phrase. He took our place. We were scheduled to die, the penalty of our sin, the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ who willingly became our substitute and went and died on a cross of Calvary, paying the penalty for our sin, so that we, by believing in him, could have our own sins forgiven. Because Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. He was crucified as a sinless savior. He, never, he wasn't crucified for his own sins because he didn't sin, so that he could be crucified for our sins. So that God the Father would receive this act of sacrifice and we could be made right with God. Another was punished in the place of the guilty. There's a final point, and we move to the Lord's table with this. God is recreating a new family from within the mass of rebellious humanity. We ask the question, how can we get into the holy family of God? How in the world can sinful people have communion and fellowship with a holy, holy God who cannot even look at sin What has God done to enable that to happen for us? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, listen, the righteousness of God is revealed. Romans 1, 16, 17. 
A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. What has happened? Something quite amazing, because we can't be saved by works. All our works are as filthy rags to God. We couldn't do enough good things, and God's standard is 100% perfect, perfection. A holy God calls to us, be holy as I am holy. How can I be holy? Listen to the words of the scriptures. Romans, we're still in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, that's Jesus, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. When you come to a place in your life where you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross, there is a transaction that happens. Jesus Christ gives you his righteousness as a gift so that when God the Father looks at you, he sees you as 100% righteous. Regardless of what you've done or how you're currently living, positionally, he sees you as righteous. It's the same thing as when Israel was being rescued out of Egypt. Do you remember what God said to them? I want you to take a substitutionary sacrifice, a lamb, unblemished. I want you to slaughter it. And I want you to put the blood over the doorposts. And when the, uh, when the angel of death comes over, he will look at, he will see the blood and he will pass over. And that's exactly what has happened for us in salvation. The amazing thing that God has done for us, we are not able, we wouldn't reach out to him, we wouldn't seek him, we couldn't by good works do anything, but Jesus Christ has taken our penalty for us and then by believing in him, he grants us his righteousness so that we are viewed by God the Father when our address is in Christ as if we are Christ himself. Totally righteous before him. But he doesn't leave us there because the unformed is now going to be formed and shaped into Christ. So the righteousness that we have been granted positionally, which enables us to have fellowship with God, now begins the process of changing us into who we are positionally. We are righteous positionally, and God is making us righteous in practicality by his amazing grace. The unformed is now being formed, and the unfilled is being filled. My dear children, for whom I am again in pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, Ephesians 4.13. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, Ephesians 3.19. Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.19. That's what God is doing. He's taking the unformed us who have been granted the righteousness of Christ and forming Christ in us. He has taken the unfilled, self-determined person who is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and filling us with the Spirit of God that we might serve Him, love Him, become like Him, and the image of Christ and God is being restored in us. And that's what we celebrate. That's what I'm inviting you to right now. This is the truth about you and about me. And if you 
this morning are without the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. He is as close as a decision right now to respond to his draw in your heart. You see, if God is bringing you into your, his family, he draws you in. You don't have to work hard at this. You don't have to fight for this to happen. He's, he's in your heart right now working it over and saying, hey, come to me. Listen to this truth. Respond to it. He draws you into his family and you believe. And when you believe, he grants you a status of a son or daughter of God and invites you to a celebration of what God has done for us. Not guilty anymore because another has taken our punishment. Declared righteous so he can go to work on us, making us righteous. And we who were dead formerly in our trespasses and sins have now been made alive by Christ Jesus, an act of creation. The same God who said, let light shine in the darkness has spoken light into our dark hearts. It's the same process from an almighty God who speaks life to existence and will speak it into your heart right now and has instituted the Lord's table for the Lord's disciples to remember often the truth of this, what we once were and what God has now done for us. And we celebrate it and we examine our lives because it's for disciples. Are you a disciple of Jesus this morning? If you are, then we invite you now to join us at the table where we'll celebrate our salvation as disciples of Jesus Christ. Disciples of Jesus Christ have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their lives. They have identified with Christ through the waters of baptism. And they are faithfully, with God's strength, obeying his commands. That's a disciple. If you're one, then join us at this table. Our Father, our Lord, our God, maker of heaven and earth, our creator, who made us in our forefathers righteous. But we ruined it, oh God, with our rebellious, self-centered, self-determination, independence, desire to turn away from you. And so we were ruined, banished. The way was shut. But by your love and by your grace and by your mercy, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And the way was barred. But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no woman comes to the Father but by me. Oh God, thank you for Jesus. Though we were banished and separated from God, he made the way possible. By his substitutionary sacrifice for us. And then the granting of the gift of righteousness, oh God, to us, that the Father might see us perfect in Christ. 
is too awesome for me to even consider. And now, oh God, what do we, how do we respond to all of that? We love you. We obey you. We serve you. We worship you. We adore you. We thank you. We praise you, oh God, for our salvation and your great love for us and for your glory's sake alone, I pray. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.